So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin here with your friend and mine, David Hampton. Oh, David. Yeah. Another day, another week. On we go. Huh? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Plotting along as, as it were sometimes. Uh, yeah. 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 I don't know how your week has gone. But I had a big bump in my week this week. Uh, took me by surprise. An emotional okay. bump. Oh, no. That's the thing. We're, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, what, who was it who said, you know, the good news when you get into recovery is you get your emotions back and mm-hmm. the bad news is you get your emotions back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like, thanks uh, for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Oh, um, no. So what is your uh, what was your emotional um, challenge? OK, so oh, and this is all about attachment as well. Everybody's okay. talking about attachment these days. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I think during my years of active addiction, I did not have, I had a connection with my wife and that's about it. And I most mm-hmm. kept everybody at arm's length and I was not going to be, you know, emotionally dependent on anybody. I was really committed to independence. Yeah. Um, and that certainly extended to people. So here's the thing. Uh, we have a dog. We have a sweet dog named Daisy. Okay. This is not the first dog we have owned, but for some reason, um, I have formed an emotional attachment to this dog Mm. and she to me, she is my dog. Okay. She, she, I mean, she likes Allie and I know she, she'll hang out with Allie and all that kind of stuff. Sure. But it's very clear. She's my dog. (laughs) Right. She doesn't even care. She's not even trying to be impartial at that point. Right. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, I grew up, you know, where there would be a dog around the house. But if, you know, if, if that dog got hit by a car, we got another dog, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just. Yeah. So I took Daisy uh, out to a big park, the Murray County Park on Wednesday. And uh, she, man, she loves to run. I love to watch her run. She's just mm. gorgeous when she runs. Uh. Uh, and I. Uh, and I let her run in the park, we went to the back part of this big park and there was nobody around and I let her off and she took off running, you know, like a shot, gorgeous, uh, running across the field. She ran into the woods. Oh no. No, I called to her and she came back out. Okay. She's done that before. So it was fine. And she's right. running back across the field toward me and, uh, and I've got the treat ready. 
because we got a routine. There's a she's going to be a reward when she gets back to the car. Yeah, incentive. And then all of a sudden, she changes direction oh, and no. heads off in the other direction across and into some other woods, where later I saw deer. I think oh. that's what she saw. Oh, okay. So I called and waited and called and waited, and then I went hunting, and then I. It was five minutes, it was 10 minutes, it was half an hour, it was an hour, it was two hours. Oh. Now I'm starting to panic. And, oh, yeah. and I can hear my dad going, it's a dog, right? <laughs> but, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so then God. I call Allie and let her know, and then now the word gets out, and now I'm posting on Facebook, and now, and we didn't find her. Oh, gosh. Uh, and so... I got to tell you, Wednesday night, I could hardly sleep. Oh no! It goes into the night. Oh. Yeah, ah. I could hardly, I could hardly sleep, and I dreamed when I did manage to sleep. I'm dreaming about the damn dog, oh, God. and <laughs> and the oh. whole time that morning I had to do a big presentation. I'd been I'd been invited to speak to a bunch of bankers, the heads of trust departments from five states for this bank. Uh, and it's something new to me. It's a whole new kind of different kind of presentation. Mm -hmm. And I had reserved Wednesday as my preparation day, uh -huh. but that was shot. I was hunting for the dog the whole day. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I was, but I was able to pull it together, did the pre went hunting for the dog early, still couldn't find her, went, made the presentation. It went well. I'm driving back. The urge to drink starts to resurface, but mm, mm -hmm. with an intensity I have not felt in a good long time. Yeah, that nothing like a good dose of fear. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And shame. I should never oh, have sure. let her off the leaf. At least I let her run. All that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got a phone call from a very nice Mexican man. Oh my god! Wondered whether I had lost a dog. Oh gosh! Because uh, she was, she did have a tag with my mm -hmm. phone number on it, and that's one thing that had disturbed me was that all that time had passed and nobody had called. And right. So at any rate, she's back, and I wow. didn't drink. Good. Uh, and uh, but I experienced. I went on an emotional freaking roller coaster. Oh yeah. And the yeah. urge was to numb it out, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The urge Absolutely. was. These are uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I did not, uh, and I survived, and the dog came back, and so there. I mean, well, it's, that's a very small drama. It's a mini drama. That but explains for me, the, the Facebook picture I saw of you that didn't have a caption. It was just yeah. you and Daisy in the back of the uh, of the. It was right after SUV. I picked her up. <laughs> yeah. I thought, well, that's if, a great picture of Nate and his dog, but I don't know what exactly is going on there. There's got to be a story. <laughs> and I got a big smile on my face, man. Yes, I yeah. got, I got a, I got a dose of joy when that uh -huh. came. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, wow. Well, that's, but yeah, that's a, that's a. I mean, that's a. Uh, it's kind of a. a ah, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm trying too hard to find a word. It is one of those things where you're just. Uh, it's a picture of uh, how we can just allow our fear and our shame to mm -hmm. completely override um, yeah. what is for our betterment. And, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, uh, but and, and fear and shame, you know, preaching that 
whatever sermon you've heard in your head to you yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and right, probably right, in the right. voice of your dad and that, right, you right. know, and, um, but, but golly, yeah, that, that, that's a horrible feeling though. I mean that to, to, you know, be, uh, without, uh, your knowing your, your beloved pet is out roaming the earth in the dark, yeah, right. uh, alone. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, yeah. that's just, that's horrible. I mean, it really is. Ah, uh, well, Oh well, it it is. Uh, it's a happy ending, though. It's a it, you it's know, a happy like, ending. At last right. he came home, is. and everybody's happy. <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> you know, it's not like an alternative ending. Sure. <laughs> well, uh, hey, uh, we've got a great guest this week. We do. Uh, yeah, we do. We do. Speaking and, of emotions. Uh, speaking of emotions, yeah, uh, listeners, you're gonna love this one. I know you are. So. Uh, Stay with us. We'll be right back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Our guest this week is joining us from the wilds of Western Massachusetts, out there in Great Barrington. Her name is Nina Pick. And she is the author with Rabbi Rami Shapiro of the Mind Body Gu- I'm sorry, the Mind Body Guide to the Twelve Steps: Finding Joy, Sensuality, and Pleasure in Recovery, Integrative Spiritual and Somatic Practices for Healing from Trauma and Addiction. What an appealing title! And welcome to the show, Nina. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Mm. Well, we love our listeners to get to know our guests on a personal level, Uh, how, you know, the story behind the story, how you came to this field, to this practice, to writing this book. Would you mind giving giving us a a bit of a thumbnail biography? What was the long and winding road that got Nina to the place she is today? Sure. So um, I entered 12-step recovery in 2009. Mm-hmm. And um, just received, you know, so many gifts from uh, from the twelve steps, from the fellowships. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been in recovery in um, a number of different fellowships with different focuses, yeah. and um, that process has continued to deepen and unfold for me over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, I. Uh, went to grad school for counseling psychology, and that was in my first year of sobriety. Actually, I started wow. that program, and um, and today I'm a, a somatic practitioner. So I work uh, with like a body um, orientation, and it's a lot about uh, integrating mind and body. Mm-hmm. And um, I work with individuals and couples. And, um, and so in terms of coming into the, my writing for this book Mm -hmm. over the years of my own recovery, um, you know, while I received so much from that, the 12 step process and Mm -hmm. community, I also could see where some of the limitations were for me personally. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, was also in uh, long-term psychotherapy um, that was based in, in a Jungian approach and the work of Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and as I started to explore, you know, through the 11th step uh, prayer and meditation, mm-hmm. my um, my own understanding of um, how the 12 steps um, interweave with um, various spiritual lineages and mm-hmm. um, practices started to expand a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, so in writing this book, I wanted to offer a, a trauma-sensitive approach to the 12 steps, which is something that luckily is starting to um, become more, um, yeah. I think, more common, more mm-hmm. known. But for a long time, the 12 steps, um, as they were practiced, didn't always have the most sensitive holding of people's trauma. And the mm-hmm. way that trauma and addiction interact, and um, so I wanted to bring in a trauma-sensitive approach, one that's oriented in the body, right? Not just in like a kind of cognitive understanding, mm-hmm. um, and um, one that could also really meet people wherever they were at, right? To have a mm-hmm. a non-dogmatic understanding of the twelve steps and of higher power, and that would allow an accessible um, entry point for people new to the 12-step program or a deepening for people who had walked on the path already for some time. Yeah. Wow. wow. Nina, what are some of the barriers or the um, kind of the speed bumps in getting people connected um, uh, to a, a more somatic approach? What are the things people kind of have to let go of or overcome in order to to engage in the kind of work you would want to do with them. Yeah. So, you know, I think that what I love about somatics is it's, um, it's very gentle and it's really honoring of, um, of the, the barriers Mm -hmm. that we Mm -hmm. have to, toward deepening into Mm -hmm. ourselves or toward having a, you know, more, um, a fuller understanding of our histories and, um, and the imprints that we might be carrying from traumatic experiences mm-hmm. in our childhood. Or, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, so I think it's a lot with somatics. It's about kind of meeting um, actually where the, where the barrier is and bringing a lot of um, gentleness and compassion to that place. Mm-hmm. So where we might be experiencing fears or where um, moving into the sensations of the body you know, can feel not safe, you know, mm-hmm, for many mm-hmm. of us, right? right? And so we don't force anything. We just bring a kind of friendly witnessing to whatever is present and um, and start to build, you know, I think for people who are, you know, can understandably be hesitant to have a more body-oriented approach, mm-hmm. right? Because especially with trauma, the body is like the place where bad things happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not safe. It hasn't been safe to feel in the body. And emotions can feel really overwhelming, right? Sensations mm-hmm. can feel really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And so especially in, um, you know, working working with trauma, I think it's important to go very, very slowly and to build pathways that are actually you know, like the the subtitle of my book says, that are oriented in pleasure and in joy. Mm-hmm. And um, that as we start to come into the body, how can it be um, a joyful experience, right? How can mm-hmm. we find places in the body that feel safe to rest our awareness in, 
right? Mm. We don't go straight towards the the most difficult thing. We don't go straight to the the mm-hmm. deepest feelings, right? Or the most intense sensations. We start mm-hmm. with what feels neutral, what might feel have a little bit of glimmer of, of pleasure mm-hmm. or of mm-hmm. joy, and mm-hmm. then go from there. Yeah. You know, this is where I wish we were a video podcast because I would love our listeners to get a look at Nina as she's talking. Because <laughs> Nina, you really do radiate joy. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got just this very, yeah. Uh, um, I have witnessed some very clumsy emotional surgery where well-meaning people have taken people right to that deep trauma right away in a way that traumatizes them more and makes it just, uh, it's so, so, so I, I love that you go for the low hanging fruit and your, and your orientation is toward joy and you're not pushing anybody toward the deepest stuff. I'm aware that trauma is subjective. A difficult experience can be traumatic for one person and and not for another. It's very much how our own story and our own makeup and our own orientation meets the experience, right? To help deter, to, uh, to determine how traumatic it will be. So I know you can't make a general classification, but I'm wondering if you just step back a bit uh, from the various people that you've worked with. Have you found that um, that childhood sexual trauma tends to be more a deeply destructive and uh, difficult to work with than other types? Yeah. So I think what's so, so profoundly traumatic about sexual trauma, sexual abuse is that it's, um, it's a relational trauma, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a violation that comes from the very people who the child might trust most. right? Right. And, um, and that it's something that a child is very alone with, right? Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. they may feel, you know, generally feel they have to keep it secret. They may mm-hmm. feel ashamed, right? Mm-hmm. And and Peter Levine, who's the founder of Somatic Experiencing, one of the most known and most, um, you know, innovative and influential um, ways of working with trauma somatically. He said, um, trauma is what happens in the absence of the of a loving witness. Mm-hmm. Right? So there with relational trauma, such as sexual abuse, for instance, there's the the event and then there's the being alone with it, right? Mm-hmm. So the kind of doubling over. Um, and it's the same thing with say like shock trauma, right? Of you know, um, like a physical trauma, uh, accident, yeah. car crash. Mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, right? It's, there's the event itself and then it makes all the difference the way that it's held, mm-hmm. right? And how a person is, is met in the, in the immediate aftermath, right? Do they feel mm-hmm. alone with it? In which case it touches on relational ruptures, right? Mm-hmm. Or do they feel met and held? In which case that um, the pain of that trauma can be um, can be met and soothed by the, the relational connection. Because mm-hmm. we're like, you know, at essence, relational beings, mm-hmm. right? We're hardwired yeah. for Absolutely. connection and for love. And right. um, and so I think the, the, the deepest and the, the, 
worst traumas are when there's um, there's violation, pain, um, you know, um, that that has also that relational component as mm-hmm. well. That's a rupture or a betrayal or mm-hmm. a neglect in the in the relational field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nina, so so much of uh, recovery for most of us, I think, is actually getting back in touch with feeling anything at all. Um, you know, because I know early in my recovery, somebody would say, "Well, how do you feel about you know whatever?" I had no idea, <laughs> and and I wasn't you know being evasive. I I just I don't know. I don't I don't know what I feel about that. I don't know what I think about that. I'm starting just now to have opinions, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and realize that they're valid. And, um, and so as you get folks coming in and they're so disconnected, uh, from feeling and from, um, from just being able to be in touch with that space in themselves that, have, that has been numbed out so much by either, you know, substances or behaviors or whatever. And, um, that's, that's gotta be a pretty profound thing to watch people kind of light up or come to a place of actually experiencing, God, you know, this must be, this must be what it's like to, um, to, to feel or to experience something. Um, how, how is that for you as the, as the practitioner, so to speak in that, in that role, as you're, as you're just kind of watching this, this person, uh, bloom in a way. Yeah, it can be so, so wonderful. I mean, I think the the deepest longing that I have when I see someone in, um, you know, suffering and say like early recovery, right, Mm -hmm. is like I can see the what's calling to them from their future, Mm -hmm. right? And I know that that road's not easy and I know that there's going to be, you know, obstacles in that road. But um, when they, when someone can start to move toward like the the fullest, their fullness, right, towards mm-hmm. their life force and start to embody that, it's it's a beautiful thing to see. It's like watching a flower bloom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then just the other part of that that comes to mind, you know, and as you were, you know, asking that question that came to mind was also just like holding a reverence for the function of the substance or of the addictive behavior, Mm. right? Because um, we needed to numb because it wasn't safe to feel, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And we might have been, you know, had so much activation and so much anxiety that we needed to to numb all that, Mm -hmm. right? Or maybe we felt so frozen and so numb as a result of, trauma or chronic stress early on that maybe we needed to bump ourselves up mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so there's an attempt with the substances it was you know unconscious but um you know survival strategy right that was mm-hmm. an attempt to bring us back into homeostasis and to 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 um find some sense of of um functioning and of peace so so i think um it's a little bit, and I think this is changing and growing in the recovery world, but I think mm-hmm. it's moving away a little bit from, um, you know, as it says in the big book, right? Like al- with alcohol, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. <laughs> and I think my, which is useful, right? To think uh-huh. of it that way. But also yeah. I, I think I'm wanting to to also hold as like, what what was that flame for? 
what was that flame doing for us? Mm-hmm. How did that flame help us survive when we didn't have any other resources available? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I understand and love the fact that you are oriented toward um, helping us as we recover experience greater uh, sensuality, joy, and pleasure. But I'm wondering uh, how you approach grief. In my experience, very often that, that one unfelt emotion, the one that just seems so terrifying, the one we stay away from, is sadness. And I would love just to have a solution that would never require me to grieve a necessary loss. Uh, How do you approach grief or if not grief, anger, the other difficult emotions that are unfelt that uh, that I'm going to need to connect with in order to become fully alive? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, just first of all, I really resonate with that question. I think it's one that that most of us mm-hmm. grapple with, right? Uh-huh. Um, it's just such like very human mm-hmm. vulnerability, um, tenderness. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say it's something I, I struggle with on an existential level, right? Why, mm-hmm. how is it so... Right. When our hearts start to open, we open to the joy and we open to the grieving and we can't have mm-hmm. one, I don't think, without the other. I agree. Right. Mm-hmm. And and, you know, David, like you were saying earlier, you know, we start to. Um, to kind of awaken, right, almost mm-hmm. like. Um, you know, Peter Levine uses this metaphor, right? Like we had frostbite and then it it stings, right? As yeah. Start mm-hmm. to come back to life and. So I think holding that, that, um, that in order to, you know, that, that in order to feel pleasure, in order to feel aliveness, we're also feeling pain. And, um, that's a, like a spiritual conundrum for me that I'm wrapping my head around (laughs) and trying to wrap my heart around every day, I think. Um, Uh you know, I think in terms of the work, yeah, I think I do feel that as well that grief is at the the real heart of it um you know we talk a lot about resentment in Mm -hmm. the 12-step program Mm -hmm. and you know I think there's layers right resentment is a kind of in a way a cognitive experience Mm -hmm. right it's like I'm mulling it over and thinking about what I should have said and wish the other person hadn't said and blah 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 right? right it's all up here it's kind of protective Oh, I have right. no idea what you're talking about. None <laughs> at all. Absolutely no idea. Okay. And then as, uh-huh. we, as, we, as we come to the deeper layers, right, we might experience it more as anger, right? Mm-hmm. We might realize that there was a way that maybe we neglected to protect a boundary, right? Mm-hmm. We neglected, we weren't able to assert ourselves, right? Um, we feel blamed, we feel criticized, we feel we're not mm-hmm. good enough, right? It gets deeper, deeper, deeper. Yeah. Then we're getting to the core wounds, right? Okay, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not good enough, right? We, we're at, in that place of shame. And then before you know it, right, I think the, the, deep, the deeper we track it, we're at those really early, early childhood experiences, yes. right? Where we experience relational rupture, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, we're at that place where we um, 
there was, um, we were alone with difficult mm-hmm. experience, right? We were navigating um, chaos in the environment. We were um, navigating misattunement or neglect or abuse mm-hmm. or punishment from caregivers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, and all of that turns inward into this place of I'm, I'm bad, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's protective. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a way to, for the child to organize mm-hmm. chaotic experience and painful experience. So I think at its heart, right, we when we come to the core, there's a tremendous amount of grief there. We're mm-hmm. grieving relational losses on all levels, right? Yes. Grieving what could have been, what should have been in our childhoods, mm-hmm. you know, the love that we came into the world. Mm-hmm. longing for knowing what's mm-hmm. possible right and mm-hmm. the disappointments the, the heart wounds again and again mm-hmm. we're grieving what what our ancestors experiences may have mm-hmm. been over generations mm-hmm. right and then grieving losses relational losses in later parts of our lives grieving parts of ourselves that we may have lost connection with grieving mm-hmm. loss of connection with the earth and mm-hmm. the losses that the earth is experiencing and that we as a human species are experiencing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's profound. Um, and I think that grief can be and is, and I would just say this from my own experience, uh, on in that kind of like underworld journey is that it's also a pathway to higher power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Because there even uh, is connection, I think, in grief. You know, I mean, it can be isolating, of course, and and very alienating at times, maybe. But um, well, no, maybe, but it can be. But um, but there's. I also think that yeah, like you're saying, there is that connection element mm-hmm. to grief uh, that it mm-hmm. does connect us. And I think that um, uh, to your point earlier, Nina, when you said you were sort of the the empathetic witness to someone's um, pain, their trauma, um, then they're not alone in it. And, and now it's less trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the same with grief is, is it, it connects us in a way that, um, things are still hard. They're still painful, but I still, but now I have a witness in my grief mm-hmm. and, um, and a connection spiritually in some ways. Yeah, the way that grief connects me to the higher power. I mean, that's that's a fascinating. Con- it reminds me of that phrase from the Psalms, like "Out of the depths, O Lord, I cry unto you." It's like that, and it's that that song of lament that somehow connects me to higher power. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, do you have? Tissues in your office, Nina? Yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> Several boxes. <laughs> okay, okay. She's she's the joy. She wants to connect you to joy and 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 sensuality and pleasure, but there very well may be tissues involved. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. But I, I love that this work you do is associated with 12-step um, recovery, Nina, because so much of the 12-step experience that I had um, was so positive and, and good. And I, I felt connected to other people who were almost telling my story 
all the time I would hear, you know, sharing and I'd go, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. Uh, And I resonated so much, but what I often uh, felt a little bit alone in was I didn't know if there was um, room for how some things impacted me individually. Um, I felt maybe at times there was a little bit of a, um, I don't want to say a mold that I had to step into and fit, but, but there was a template I think in place that, um, that I, I wasn't sure if my, uh, if my emotions and lack of them or lack of connection to them or, um, any of that, I wasn't sure where that was going to get, um, touched on, you know, and, and so that felt a little hit and miss, uh, to me in my experience, but, um, I love that you incorporate, um, all of that into this recovery model. Um, and, um, and, uh, uh, Rabbi Shapiro, uh, what is your connection with him? Because I enjoyed his book, the, uh, oh gosh, now the title is gone. The, the sacred art recovery, the sacred art. Is that it? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I also am a, a fan of his work. And so I, um, reached out to him to write the foreword for the book. Um, you know, I think similarly, we're both um, drawing on, on Jewish teachings. Um, that's part mm-hmm. of the framework that, that my book is bringing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, to, um, to to speak to your point about like kind of the, you know, feeling like you, like you were trying to fit this template and where was the space for your own individual journey. Mm-hmm. And that was part of what I was wanting to offer in, in my book and that I really appreciate about Rabbi Rami's work is, um, you know, the 12 steps have been, you know, are and have been a traditionally kind of Christian framework. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, um, you know, that the end, of course, there's people in recovery from all different kinds of backgrounds, right? And all mm-hmm. different religious and spiritual traditions, and also mm-hmm. people who, um, you know, are atheist or agnostic, or, mm-hmm. you know, pagan or you know all different different Mm -hmm. um backgrounds and belief systems and um so I was wanting to kind of lightly offer a Jewish framework because that's just where I'm standing and what's been meaningful to me Mm -hmm. in um in a Jewish framework that is you know that is earth-based that is um non-hierarchical that is Mm -hmm. not about like a a a male god necessarily but Mm -hmm. like our own embodied sense of higher power Mm -hmm. um and then with the different exercises and practices that i offered in the book wanting to offer a range so that people could kind of find their own pathway right like not every tool works for everyone Mm -hmm. and um i think it's you know different different people have we each have pathways that are most accessible to us and others that are interesting and that we want to grow and expand into. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping that, you know, to invite people into an exploration of their own experience with the tools and practices that felt most engaging for them. Yeah. Most accessible. Yeah. How often do you meet with people typically? What is a client, um, uh, uh, typically going to experience as far as uh, weekly or, um, how often do you, do you get together? Yeah, I generally do a weekly session. Yeah. I think it's really important. Um, especially at the beginning, right. As you're kind of yeah. establishing the, the relational field to have that, that consistency. Yeah. And, it, and is this all, is this ever done remotely? Is this something that can be done over zoom, for example? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I offer um, 
both remote sessions and in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that most somatic work, as many somatic therapists and practitioners have found, um, translates really well actually to working remotely. Yeah. Really. Okay. Well, there went one of my excuses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So currently my practice is about half and half. I have an office here in Great Barrington, and then I work with clients on Okay, uh, okay. And is there some um, homework or uh, something that goes along with uh, things that you would like for them to, uh, to, to do during the, the time that you, between visits and things? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's generally like, um, you know, I invite the, the, the people I work with to to find something that felt like a value for them that they found in themselves mm. um, during the session and, and with the invitation that they carry it with them, right? It's like we can um, find that place of goodness that we tapped into, find that place of pleasure, or maybe it might be an image that came forward that's really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be a, a sensation. It might be a, an experience of relaxation or calm or lightness and, um, what, whatever it was that they touched into, um, yeah, just encouraging them to be able to kind of anchor their awareness there and knowing that they can return to, to that feeling when they need to. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like little by little building new, um, kind of like neural pathways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we're talking about here is a, a progressive healing, right? A process. Yeah, one of the struggles that I have had with 12, and once again, I'm so grateful for 12-step recovery, and I've been in two programs, uh, and I would not have ever been launched on my recovery journey were it not for 12-step. And still, you know, it's, it's, it's foundational insights that I will never drift away from. Mm-hmm. Having said that, um, <clears throat> I felt a tremendous amount of shame in my early years because I was relapsing so regularly, I just could not find my footing. And I felt like, and always having to give my sobriety date, surrendering chips and picking up beginning chips again, feeling like I was always sliding back to the bottom of the ladder. Uh, And I will confess that there were times when I just went in and lied my ass off, Uh, just because I couldn't handle, I couldn't handle the shame burden of, of admitting another relapse. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you learned during your own personal journey and in your working with others, what's the best way to deal with slips and relapse in recovery? Yeah, I would say that like to hold it as part of the journey, right? It's not mm-hmm. other than like, I don't, I don't see it as like there's the recovery path and then there's the relapse and the relapse is over in the hinterlands. Yes, right. <laughs> that you're off the path if you're in relapse. Exactly. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just, it's part of the path. It, it just, I think it just means it's like we're not quite ready to let go of that pattern yet. Right. You know, um, I guess to speak to my own experience. So one of, um, one of the programs that I um, found recovery in is an OA and O-Readers Anonymous. And so mm-hmm. at the beginning I had a very, kind of strict food plan, right? And I know that sugar wasn't working for me. So it was mm-hmm. no sugar. So I had been abstinent for 
about six months. And then mm-hmm. on my birthday, uh-huh. my friend brought me a cupcake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, like, yeah. I so wanted to receive that gesture, which uh-huh. was like yeah. met with so much love and care uh-huh. that uh-huh. I ate the cupcake, right? right. And so right. I had to reset my abstinence date. And what I, and I felt shame at the time, right? But yeah. what I learned in, in retrospect from that experience was so much about my own pattern, right? Mm-hmm. In that one cupcake, I learned how much I was longing for love and friendship, mm-hmm. how much like I wanted to take that in, yeah. right? And that I didn't know how to differentiate between the cupcake and the love. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And so right there in that one moment was there was there was so much richness and so much learning, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's the same with any kind of relapse. Like what yeah. do we what is that experience holding? What were we really longing for? Right? right? That when we turn to the drug or the food or the alcohol mm-hmm. or the behavior Mm-hmm. We, we weren't yet able to meet in other ways. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so it's just, it's just a learning experience. How can we meet that need mm-hmm. more authentically, more deeply moving forward so that we don't need to keep turning to the substance? Right. Okay. And it's interesting too, Nina, because I think that sometimes uh, we're surrounded by uh, well-meaning people, loved ones, family, and so forth, um, that, um, if we do relapse, um, or when we do relapse, uh, there, there's this sort of message that comes through that says, oh, this thing you're doing obviously isn't working. You must, you need to do something else, you know, like, well, evidently this program you're in isn't, isn't doing it, or evidently that counseling you're doing isn't doing it or whatever that, you know, religious practice or whatever you have that's incorporated into your recovery, you know, people are so quick to help, (laughs) help us, quote unquote, uh, that they're uh, telling us this isn't working when in fact, this is like you said, like Nate, to Nate's point, this is, uh, if we have to integrate all that as a part of the process, but how do we, uh, how do we talk back to those voices in a, in a, in a loving, respectful way, but not um, allowing that to define our, our, experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that can be really hard for people, um, you know, translating what this work is to, you know, friends and family who may be very concerned, Mm -hmm. may not fully understand the process. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's easy to feel protective or, you know, feel like need to put a defense up. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say, helping people understand that this is is part of the experience, is part of the journey, right? Um, I think the slogan, um, progress, not perfection, right. is really, really helpful, right? Mm-hmm. That we're not aiming for some kind of like, you know, enlightenment necessarily, yeah. right? We are um, very tender, very vulnerable, human beings with other very tender, very vulnerable human beings all trying to figure it out, right? And mm-hmm. um, and so I think to say to friend and family, like, you know, I understand your concern and, and I do know from my experience so far and what I hear in the rooms that this is part of the journey. Mm-hmm. So we're just 
I'm just yeah. going to keep doing what's working for me. Yeah. yeah. And it, it sounds like the, the work you're doing with this process and the, and the way you're approaching it through this, through this type of um, modality or, or um, plan, um, it, it helps eliminate that all or nothing thinking. It yeah. takes me out of that, you know, real duality and black and white. And yeah, I'm either all sober or I'm a failure or you know, whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, Marion Woodman has this book. She's a Jungian analyst and she wrote a lot about addiction. And she has a book called Addicted to Perfection about mm-hmm. eating disorders mm-hmm. in particular. Yeah. And, and I think it's true in some form with all kinds of addictions is the sense of, um, it's so uncomfortable to be here in a body because a mm. body hurts, a body is messy, a body experiences mm-hmm. mishaps and shame and pain and all that, right? And, and interacting constantly with other bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there can be this like wanting to go up and out, right? Dissociating. Yeah. And sometimes that comes in the, in the guise of spirituality or, or perfection, yep. Right, mm-hmm. where we're leaving the body behind, and I'm going to be just in this like God fusion experience that's mm-hmm. clear and light and mm-hmm. crystalline all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. to be aware of that, that kind of that that numinous pull, right? Mm-hmm. And and to come oh. back to, I mean, I think this was a great value I found in in Jewish practice. I wanted to hold in the book too is like earth, like Judaism is a very earthy experience. We're not mm-hmm. trying to bypass anything that's right here. It's all about mm-hmm. the food. It's all about the relationships. You know, there's teachings on sex. There's teachings on, you know, um, food. There's prayers for using the restroom. There's, you know, it's yeah. like, you know, right here in the body. And so when I bring in in the book, you know, there's practices that are around sexuality and having embodied um, intimacy. Mm-hmm. Right, with ourselves right. and others, right? And there's practices that bring in food, and there's there's I'm really wanting to keep it to keep it right here because this is where the work is, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. when we can okay. experience the fullness of the body experience, that's when we get to be truly alive. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's very attractive. Also, a little bit frightening. Um, <laughs> uh, so, can I do this practice? Uh, will it necessarily require a yoga mat? No yoga mats required. I am okay, okay, not good. a yoga yoga fan. I talk about okay. it a little bit in the book. Um, yoga does not work for me. I know it's okay. great for a lot of people. Uh-huh. I've never right. been able to do it and stay in my body. Oh, so. I love you. I love you. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> if it works for it works for you, that's great. Uh, but yeah. absolutely, there are many, many passive embodiment and somatics <laughs> and yoga is, is not not the best fit for all people. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. All right. For those of our listeners who would who would like to reach out to you and make contact, what's the best way for them to do that, Nina? Absolutely. So my website is ninapick.com. And I have a contact form um, on my website, so feel free to reach out that way. Um, I'm on Instagram um, at Nina Illumina, um, and I work with individuals. I do somatic uh, coaching for couples, Mm -hmm. um, which is based in an attachment framework and trauma-sensitive framework um, to bring... um, more connection and more richness into the the relationship and I also offer um, online classes in the somatics of recovery 
and I have a new one um, actually starting the first week of January. Um, so that's a 12-week course where we go through each of the steps, bringing in um, somatic practices that are about um, experiencing in real time in the class a felt sense of safety in the body, and then bringing in um, frameworks for understanding how trauma um, relates to addiction so people can start to also have a deeper understanding of their own recovery journey. Mm. Wow. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Well, Nina, thank you so much for making time in your schedule to talk with us. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the questions. And it's so nice to just like schmooze about this <laughs> with <laughs> two people who have each your own lived experience and the wisdom uh, that you're bringing from your journeys. And so it's really lovely. Thank you. Well, okay. thank you. Thank We're you geeking Nina. out on recovery. Look at us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Who would have thought, right? <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. right. All right, blessing. listeners. <laughs> Stay with us. We will return in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And our guest, Nina Pick, um, was absolutely delightful. Um, I, I just, I, 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 I feel like somebody has, has scratched my back really, really good for a long time. You know, that soothing, Uh ah, that you have, Uh, what is it about people that are (laughs) practitioners of these somatic, uh, um, uh, therapies that they're so serene and they're so easy to, uh, talk to and their, and their serenity just sort of transcends yeah (laughs) you know uh into the into the interweb and comes out on the other end you know yeah 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 it's amazing to me that that calming presence yeah it came it came through the internet man and there Mm -hmm. we were yeah Mm -hmm. i felt it yeah i think the fact that we were able it we have to make the transition someday to video because I, you and I have an advantage. We have an Mm -hmm. advantage. We got to watch her as she spoke. Right. 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 So we got the full picture. And, uh, I now understand after doing some great reading in this last week, uh, I really dug into Sue Johnson's book, love sense. Uh, Uh, okay. Uh, learning about mirror neurons, Mm. And the way that as we watch another person and read, not just posture and gestures and all that kind of stuff, but facial expression primarily, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. that these specialized nerve cells that weren't even discovered until the 1990s mm-hmm. fire in our brain and replicate in our brain what we're seeing on their face mm-hmm. so that we are able to share the emotion. It's how empathy works. It's how mm. rapport is formed. Yeah. And uh, so you and I were able to watch her face as we listened to her words. And I felt her calm, her calmness. I felt her joy. I I got an emotional Mm. transfer. Yeah. 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 It's very similar with uh, the studies they've done now with infants and the expressions, Mm -hmm. you know, it has to do with attachment, you know, as well, you know, speaking of attachment again, but still, you know, here, 
here uh, she is able to um, really exemplify what she is experiencing and you get to receive that and you experience that and you kind of are in that space of uh, yes resonating you know in a yeah. in a in a more than just a agreeable way you know yeah right um, yeah. but yeah. but I think that that uh, that that uh, work that she is doing is so important because I do feel like sometimes uh, in the steps we can lose um, a little bit of our uh, um, our uniqueness in some ways. Yes. Not that we want to be, yeah. you know, terminal, terminally unique, but um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can lose a little bit of that. And and yeah. she brings us into our story and and makes space for it and mm -hmm. and and validates that you know this is this is true and this is what you're what you're experiencing and we're going to let you have that for a bit here yeah you know what i liked about nina it's very clear to me she wasn't playing the role of a therapist right she was right mm -hmm. there's a congruency to her yeah that her face as we got to watch it matched her words the whole thing you could tell yeah yeah. Right. Yeah. And, w and when that congruence isn't there, mm -hmm. always there's an alarm bell that goes off in the back of our heads. It's very difficult to trust the, somebody who's, who's speaking secondhand about somebody else's experience, yeah. or they're trying, they're trying to convey an emotion that they don't fully feel. Yeah, you can tell when something is conceptual to someone and not necessarily right. born, like you're saying, out of their own yes. experience and history, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you can tell that woman has done her work mm -hmm. or is doing her work. She didn't even pretend to be finished. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Gives right? us hope. <laughs> There's hope. Yeah. <laughs> like you, like me, uh, she's yeah. still in process. She's still on the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that was great. Um, hey, listeners, we'd love to know uh, your response to this episode or to anything else. If you've got suggestions, you've got feedback, you've got pushback, please take a little time and uh, drop us a line at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Well, to that's hear. it for this week. Yeah. Yep. Until <laughs> next time, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 